Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey, this is Stephen Lacey, Editor-in-Chief of Green Tech Media. Welcome to Suncast. Now let's talk energy and clean tech. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey there, and welcome to episode 30 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and today we will be spending time with Patrick Doyle of MGM Innova Capital. You should keep listening if you're interested at all in structured finance for the DG solar market in Latin America, lessons learned financing private sector deals at the IDB, and how to compete as a developer for the limited capital available to the distributed generation markets. As always, I'm really grateful for you. Thanks for showing up again and encouraging me to continue with Suncast. Your voice is present in this and all episodes as I cherish and implement the feedback you provide, including interviews those you recommended. Indeed, Patrick was a recommended guest by a listener. So if you have someone or something you think should be on Suncast, you can shoot me an email, a LinkedIn message, or even just pop over to the website and leave me a quick voicemail right from your phone. That website is www.mysuncast.com. The email is nico at mysuncast.com. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Solar Plaza. Solar Plaza organizes some of the finest conferences and trade missions on solar energy and emerging markets that I have attended. And you'll get to experience it for yourself June 15th and 16th in Miami. I'll be joining them along with today's guest and other key leaders in Latin America market at their Unlocking Solar Capital LATAM event in Miami. This conference will focus on addressing the key issues in financing solar energy in Latin America, bringing together financiers, solar project developers, EPCs, and other leaders from the region. Why don't you head over to www.mysuncast.com forward slash plaza, P-L-A-Z-A, for more details and registration. Suncast listeners will get a 10% discount by using the code SUNCAST at checkout. Join us in Miami. Check this show out. I promise you won't regret it. Well, that's it for the preamble. I know you're dying to hear from Pat, so let's get it on. Thanks again for taking the time to be here. Enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Patrick Doyle. Well, today we've got Patrick Doyle on the show. Patrick Doyle is a managing director at the MGM Sustainable Energy Fund, which is focused on renewable energy and energy efficiency. Pat handles many of MGM's investments in distributed generation in Mexico, Panama, Brazil, to name a few in Latin America. And some of you may know him from his time leading Inter-American Development Bank's work on distributed generation and energy efficiency, but he also cut his teeth in clean energy and technology as a strategy consultant, and before that, as a facility energy manager for the U.S. Navy. Pat, great to have you on the Suncast, man. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks a lot, Nico. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's uh, less sunny today than the last time we hung out down in uh, Miami, but thankfully there are no hurricanes on the way. <laughs> yes, yes. It wasn't the ideal time to be out on South Beach, but hopefully it'll be better this time. Yeah, well, as I mentioned in the intro, we'll have another opportunity to see each other in Miami at Solar Plaza's event. But before that, on we go with the show. Pat, I, I always find it interesting to understand how or why a fellow gringo, which you decidedly are, <laughs> became fluent in a foreign language and looked for a career outside of U.S. borders. And I know from your experience that you speak fluent Spanish. Can you give me a little backstory? What's the, what's up with that? Sure. Well, my father was in the Navy, so I was always traveling and, and interested in international travel. But uh, flunked out of Spanish in eighth grade and, and just kind of passively got through it in the rest of high school. But then my first duty station in the Navy was in southern Spain, a nice place, uh, Cadiz. And I was the facilities engineer there, you know, managing a power plant and the energy efficiency programs for the Navy on the base, among among other projects, construction projects. And uh, they sent me to language school. So uh, after three years in, in Spain, I managed to learn Spanish in one of the hardest regions in the world, world to learn it, and that's uh, Andal Andalusia. Andalusia, so. yeah. No way. That's funny. I just uh, posted a, a Facebook post today uh, when I was visiting a friend of mine who's also in uh, the armed services who has a house in Vejer. And the reason he has a house in Vejer de la Frontera is because his friends who were stationed uh, near Cadiz had recommended it as a as a potential location for him to retire. That place is fabulous. Yes, I uh, I probably should have stuck around there after the Navy and, and gotten a lead in the solar industry because that's really where the some of the first uh, solar projects in Spain were built. But yeah, and that uh, was you were there in the late '90s, early 2000s, right? Yes, I left before 2000. So um, okay, but so the, before the, the Spain market really boomed. But yes, before the fiend tariffs came in. That notwithstanding, you, so I'm guessing you said you went to language school. Is that DLI? Uh, no, I didn't get DLI, but I got in a six-week intensive program in Sevilla, and then uh, oh, cool! Uh, what a great learned. place to have language school. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, my brother went to DLI in Monterey, and uh, that's that's not a bad location either. But mm. um, but no, yeah, I managed uh, managed to pick it up. Yeah, I mean, most all, almost all of the folks in the in the armed services that I know, I met. Through uh, my connection in Monterey, I was there for grad school, and and aforementioned friend also went to language school at DLI. Well, look, uh, that's really fascinating. You learned Spanish in Spain, as you mentioned, Andalusia being one of the perhaps more difficult places to learn the language. And did you have any work trailing off of uh, of being at the Navy that was involved in international affairs, or was it always international affairs? No, after the Navy, I went to graduate school and I did internships in Costa Rica and Brazil, which were for um, energy industry related positions. And and then afterwards, went to work for a cogen startup that wasn't investing in Latin America, but was doing many investments in, in the U.S., New York, uh, California mm -hmm. and Hawaii and similar markets to where where we're investing now. Yeah. And I know I mentioned in the lead up that you worked for Inter-American Development Bank. What prompted the move from what principally was uh, you know, private sector work over to IDB? Well, I joined the IDB's um, private sector financing arm. So, you know, as a management consultant, mm -hmm. I was working on strategies and advising governments and companies on how best to attract clean tech finance and how to invest in, in technology successfully. Um, at the IDB, I actually had the chance to invest in those projects and, and companies. 
And uh, I had a unique position at the time as as the the first climate change expert hired within the the um, the private sector of the IDB. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was really involved in the very first solar projects that we financed, um, a little bit in in the very first wind projects, and then uh, many of the other types of of, of renewable projects and um, ended up managing all the international climate funds that the private sector um, obtained for the IDB. So and how does that work? You mentioned the private sector for the for folks that may not know how IDB is structured. What does it mean, private sector versus uh, what, what? I mean, International Development Bank, Inter-American Development Bank is a multilateral bank, um, but how does the private sector aspect of it work? The private sector invests in in, in non-sovereign um, projects, so it invests in private sector projects, whereas the public sector um, gives loans to governments uh-huh. that that may trickle down to the private sector, but does not take project or company risk. So, so if you're um, on the private sector of the IFC or the IDB, um, now now it's called the IIC, you're mm-hmm. really um, acting as a commercial banker in many ways. Oh, I see. Wow. So you mentioned that you led the funds internationally. Were you involved in, I presume, more jurisdictions than just the Americas then? Uh, no, the Inter-American Development Bank is only the Caribbean and Central and South America and Mexico. So the funds come from all over the world, but it can only be invested in, in those locations. And I'm, you know, I, I, I worked with various other multilaterals and uh, obtained funds that were these international climate funds um, under the Clean Technology Fund, uh, you know, now the Green Climate Fund, uh, and there's various other uh, international climate funds that are channeled to help developing countries invest in climate change. Um, but then I also was the lead investment officer for projects that were um, investments that were less than $10 million. Okay. And that was a lot of our focus on, on distributed generation and energy efficiency. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to know uh, what were some of the early wins or early surprises that you participated in during your time at IDB? Well, the the one thing that people uh, think when they come to the multilaterals is that they have cheap finance or they take higher risks than the private sector. And so they're, they they tend not to do that on the private sector. They, they don't crowd out um, local banks or international banks. So, so they really have a, a kind of a narrow window of projects that they can finance. Now, fortunately, with international climate funds, we could overcome some of those risk barriers or cost barriers in some cases. Um, but in general, we were acting as a commercial bank, and and so it wasn't grants or or subsidies for projects. It was really uh, trying to finance projects and and structure them so that they'd be commercially viable. Mm-hmm. Now, for the purpose of uh, clarity, when the Inter-American Development Bank, or even now, when you know, in your current work, when you mention distributed generation, do you have a band within which you think, uh, uh, when you, which it, within which falls distributed generation? Distributed generation, generally behind the meter, so um, not selling over the grid. It would mm-hmm. be the the broadest definition of it. Now, there are cases in. Uh, certain countries, such as Brazil, where they have virtual net metering and they allow you to actually get credit as if you're behind the meter when you're selling over the over the grid. Right. Um, but um, 
you know, generally you're talking in less than five megawatt projects and less than $10 million projects individually. And you're trying to bundle those projects so that you can get debt financing on a project basis, project mm -hmm. finance basis. Interesting. Well, given your experience broadly across the Americas, I thought it'd be fun for you to play a game I call hot or not. I'll name a specific market or markets and we'll spend 30 to 60 seconds on whether you think it's a hot market and not market uh, or lukewarm maybe and why. And uh, we'll start with Mexico. And I expect that your answer, by the way, will probably be focused more through the lens of distributed generation. That's totally fine. I recognize that there's a whole different world for different renewables and different sizes of projects. So for the purposes of this hot or not, we'll talk about distributed generation, primarily solar, and we'll go start with Mexico. Yes, Mexico on the on the large scale projects, if you have a, a grandfathered pre-reform PPA, the market's very hot because you have to get those projects built, I believe, by the end of this year or perhaps mm -hmm. one year extension. For DG projects, um, there are certain residential consumers that pay very high tariffs above 20 cents a kilowatt hour. And as well as certain um, tarifa dos, which is um, small small businesses, basically. So those those DG markets are hot. I think the larger commercial industrial projects are not mm -hmm. as hot yet, uh, given prices are still fairly low. Interesting. C and I in Mexico, not so hot. All right. How about the Caribbean? And if, feel free to drill down if there are any specific islands you think are worth the time and effort. But we'll look at the Caribbean broadly as a market. Yes, we as a fund are only engaged in uh, the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, and Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't speak to the other the other islands at this point. Although I worked on a transaction that that was recently closed for the IDB in the Bahamas, so the Bahamas the numbers definitely work. I would say uh, the Dominican Republic is is hot. I believe Jamaica is, is not quite as hot, but probably lukewarm. And then Haiti will be interesting. I think it's there's several off-grid uh, or microgrids that are looking to incorporate solar. And uh, you know there'll be some installations uh, in the next two years there as well. Very interesting. I'd be curious to know if you feel like the Caribbean is a market that is, uh, is scalable multi-year or you know simply opportunistic, especially from a fund perspective. I think if you're looking to place um, up to $50 million, it's it's possible. But uh, I think you know, from a large um, $100 million plus market, uh, it's going to be very difficult. I think we've seen even in larger markets, it can take a long time to uh, sign enough distributed generation projects to, to build scalability. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. And all right. So let's move on to Central America, hot or not. Uh, still hot. Um, definitely mm -hmm. depends on the country. Uh, the electricity markets are very different in each country. Um, and, and prices are still high, so that standalone uh, solar makes sense. But again, it's the, it's the signing of the PPAs with each industrial customer. You know, it's, this, it's overcoming the, the consumer hesitance and, and understanding and willing to be committed to a long-term uh, 10 year plus contract uh, to buy electricity from you rather than the status quo. Yeah. So you mentioned it, you actually brought up a, a topic that is currently in discussion throughout Central America, and that is that of a PPA. 
famously in Panama, it's illegal to sign a PPA. Do you see PPAs actually, I guess maybe El Salvador, where do you see PPAs being signed specifically as a, as an energy contract? I mean, when I say PPA, often we, we mean lease contract. So our energy efficiency projects are generally done under equipment leases, either oh, yeah. oper- operational or financial leases, and, and similar with solar projects in most countries, such as Panama. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you, you can actually sign, have, have the words you know, per kilowatt hour and a price on it in Honduras, I know, Nicaragua, El Salvador, in the DR, it's it's a little more complicated under PPA structures mm-hmm. to capture the tax benefits. So, so you definitely need good local lawyers that understand the regulations in each country. Absolutely. Do you see a lot of those projects being developed by local firms or by folks coming in from exterior markets? I see it generally the successes by local firms, by people who have a presence on the ground and that are able to keep knocking on those doors until mm-hmm. the client signs on the dotted line. Now, those projects are sometimes sold then to to companies like ours that that then pays have, for, for the projects to, to be right. developed or, or to another developer. But yeah. I, increasingly, I think, especially as you get more competition in these markets, it really is going to... Uh, those who are able to sign the projects are going to have people on the ground who who know the finance, know the energy markets, and and are good salespeople as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's move to South America. I'll touch on four specific markets, and we'll start with one that I know is dear to your heart. How about Brazil? Hot or not? Brazil's hot, and uh, it has this five megawatt virtual net metering law that's one of the most generous I've ever seen in the world. Um, there are some complications to that, so it's it's not um, it's not like you can guarantee that you'll get the full retail tariff for a five megawatt net meter plant. There are some complications to that, and and there is some uh, confusion about the actual taxes that are applied in those scenarios. So, given that, and then the fact that it's Brazil and there's some financial crisis still going on. Mm-hmm. It it hasn't taken off as fast as it will, but but we've invested heavily in in Brazil, and we expect to to put ten million dollars to work this year in distributed generation projects in Brazil. Wow, that's great! And ten million to work in Brazil, roughly how many megawatts you, you expecting to be able to deploy? That's that's probably about seven megawatts in Brazil. It's the costs are higher in Brazil because of taxes and import duties, so. We're not getting as low of prices. In in some countries, we're getting install prices of a dollar watt. So, in wow. Brazil, in Brazil, it's it looks to be higher than that. Maybe um, you know, one point five. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I, I guess what would be on your wish list for twenty seventeen? What would happen in Brazil that would rapidly uh, accelerate the market there? You need a few pilot projects in each utility's territory, mm-hmm. and um, and real you need transparency on what the Fixed fees are to interconnect to the grid, as well as what taxes are applied. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty of which taxes should be should be charged by the utility and and by the government for selling energy. Um, Brazil is another place where you actually don't you don't sign a PPA. You sign a services contract along with a uh, fixed lease contract. So so there are some complications to DG. 
Brazil for the large scale projects, you know, it, it appears that some of the early bidders bid too low and the projects are not going to get built. So mm. uh, I, I'm not tracking that very close. We do occasionally try to participate in, in large scale projects with PPA selling to the grid. And that's that would be the case with Argentina. I would say that we're, we're not active. Our fund cannot invest currently in Argentina, actually. Mm-hmm. And so we're not actively participating there, but I know electricity prices are still very low. So I don't think DG is going to be quickly taking off. I, I could be wrong if it's changed in the last year, but um, but I know a lot of my friends at IDB are focused on helping them on, build a lot of these large scale projects. On the big stuff in Argentina, I was going to ask you about right. that. Well, let's jump around across Argentina to Chile. Obviously, a huge utility market has sort of boomed and is on is on hold there. Do we see anything in Chile for distributed generation right now, hot or not? Uh, Chile is still not hot. I I did spend a lot of time on, on Chile uh, working on developing energy efficiency and and distributed generation projects at the IDB. Um, we, had, we did many studies, feasibility studies, and we offered financing to many companies. Um, um, but the, the cost of electricity is, is still low. The net metering um, uh, regime is not, uh, is not ideal. I, I guess I would say lukewarm. I, I, mm-hmm. It's gradually changed in the last couple of years. Prices have gone up. And, um, and I think we will see more distributed generation given solar panels there are among the cheapest in the world. Of course. But it, it, it doesn't have a, a great net metering regime and it, uh, it, the prices of electricity have not been high enough to really tip the scales. Okay. Well, it's in the hot or not on a country that I know MGM is inv- invested in specifically. That is Colombia. Hot or not? Yes, Colombia is hot. It's it's the the DG market we we see growing there. We've got um, we've got a, over a megawatt of projects under construction. One is complete of uh, yes rooftop solar projects wow. un, under PPAs. So. Um, so we have a lot of energy efficiency and we've got biogas projects as well in most of these markets, but, um, you know, speaking specifically for the solar plaza, um, event, yep. uh, Colombia is going to be a, a focus I'm sure because, mm-hmm. um, the incentives are in place, although the, the incentives, um, are, are designed really to help, uh, self investment. So investment by companies in their own rooftop solar, they're not, ideal for uh, a PPA or leasing model. So. Right. Yeah, I mean, I first, yeah, I think we'll, uh, so we can segue here to Columbia a bit. I first heard about uh, you guys, in particular MGM, when I was looking at development in Columbia. And, um, you know, you mentioned that you've got a fund there. The MGM and Nova, can you explain a little bit about how the fund is structured? And also, I'd love to understand how your Columbia investment is, because I understand it's actually uh, funding both energy efficiency as well as solar, right? Yes. Our fund is, uh, based in Miami and can invest in many countries in Latin America. Our, our current fund can in, in, invest in Colombia and we are just now closing our first investments in Colombia. Colombia's prices have been a little lower and it hasn't been as big of market for us as, as other countries such as Mexico, um, Panama, but we do. We have had some energy efficiency projects and biogas projects there, and those are structured under long-term energy efficiency leases. And these are like ESCO leases. This is where you provide a certain amount of savings, and you get paid on that. 
Yes, basically we we structure the lease payments so that they're so that the customer gets some savings and pays back the equipment over time, and then we turn over the equipment to the to the customer. Gotcha. Um, so MGM uh, Sustainable Energy Fund, um, you know, invests in all these markets. We do have affiliates that um, were legacy MGM companies. One is an ESCO um, with. Uh, some sophisticated engineers that are experts in energy efficiency and it's based in Medellin. So because of that, we have um, quite a big presence in, in Colombia. They also work across Latin America developing projects. But but um, so we have these affiliates that develop projects and bring them to us uh-huh. as the fund. But we also uh, sign agreements and, and finance projects from various developers around the region. Uh, we can put direct equity into projects. We can provide various forms of debt, and um, and we're open to working with any developers as on the fund. I understand. So I, I was on the impression that you guys were equity only, and so can you help me understand how the capital stack works as, from your view as a fund? What you're looking for in the marketplace, and what you find as attractive, and and then how you partner with others. Yes, generally we are. In rare cases, are we coming in um, pre-PPA, so for a project that's that's not finished development, that doesn't have a, a contract in place, we are doing that in, in certain cases. So we were willing to look at projects that are very well developed but don't quite have the final, um, all the final development steps complete, um, particularly for, for things like hydros. For rooftop solar, uh, really, we have development partners that are bringing us the the signed or almost signed contracts, and we're negotiating the final terms with the off-takers, with the commercial industrial customers. Do you find that's where you have the most strength, is helping your potential, your development partners kind of dot the I's and cross the T's, or are you just bringing financing to projects? No, we often need to help dot the I's and cross the T's because uh, various countries with various legal requirements, very various degrees of risk taking, especially if you're hoping to get debt into the projects, which is necessary in many cases to hit a greater than 10% return on investment, you really need to structure the contracts in the right way. And to my knowledge, there's not, there has not been a, an aggregated debt financing of distributed generation or energy efficiency projects in Latin America. Meaning putting debt on a portfolio of DG projects. Right, exactly. Right. So that's something that there are various people working on, and, and I worked on quite a bit in the IDB. And there are, um, you know, some some projects that have, or some potential structures that could work. Um, and you know, OPIC and IFC and others have structures in place, but actually then bringing the projects that are that meet the criteria necessary to lend to those projects it mm-hmm. is a challenge and um and each client often wants different terms in their ppa or lease agreement and once you do that then all of a sudden the financiers get nervous and need to analyze each different different clause and different term and mm-hmm. understand what happens if the one one company wants to prepay and buy the system in three years and you've got a loan on that system aggregated with many other projects. So there's a lot of complications in, in getting debt into the projects. So we're, we are um, willing to, to take those risks and we are providing um, senior or subordinated debt um, or, or debt that could be subordinated eventually in, in some cases where the developer or others have 
some or or all of the equity needed mm-hmm. in other in other cases we're financing the projects with 100 percent equity wow well you've been involved in distributed generation and investment specifically across the entire america's region do you see it, any one thing that's holding solar dg back in latin america is there is there something that if solved would facilitate releasing capital into this market uh i think no, I, I think there's a, a series of challenges. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the market size and uh, replicability of the of the contracts is is one key threshold because you most banks are not interested, especially if it involves project finance, in getting in looking at any portfolio that's less than ten million for starters, mm-hmm. um, and ideally it's fifty million plus. So and that's, um, in, that's in uh, debt or in equity. In, excuse me. in yes, and well, that would probably be their ideal minimum loan size. So that means okay, if they're right. if they're financing fifty percent, then you need to have double that in in projects that are similar enough under similar enough conditions in terms of currency and and prepayment and guarantees that that the the debt providers will be able to take out a portion of that equity. And that's what we're working on now, really, as we. Uh, you know, as we kind of close our first fund, we still have some capital to invest in our current fund, but um, we'll then look to replace some of that equity with that in our energy efficiency and, and distributed generation projects. Hmm. You mentioned 50%. Um, I mean, the LTV that gets thrown around for all over Latin America changes from country to country. Obviously, in a portfolio, that's one of the things that makes it difficult is banks are more willing to offer better terms in Panama than in the DR, for example. Um, Are you seeing that it's pretty close to 50%? I mean, is it realistic that someone could get upwards of 60 or close to 70 in in debt on a portfolio? I think that's unlikely on a portfolio of various assets that yeah. have not been it's not like the u.s where you've got credit um evaluations for these projects and you've got standardized credit scoring so at the idb the idb is doing that but only because they have support of international climate funds and they can use these international climate funds to provide the additional amount above 50 percent and provide mm-hmm. first first loss guarantees to the idb to to help cushion that risk so uh, i think more uh, a more realistic target in general for dg projects is going to be 50 percent for until you have uh, an established portfolio that's that's producing you know you engage with a lot of developers in the market uh and i imagine that you see a lot of mistakes which is one of the reasons why you said that you guys come in and have to dot the I's and cross the T's. If you if you had advice for developers who would be seeking MGM's uh, investment, what might that advice include? One thing would be to ensure that your contract is legal, and ideally, it's uh, bankable. Now, bankable can is a bit flexible in, in distributed generation because there are not strong standards on, on what banks are going to accept. But um, definitely, we see a lot of contracts uh, that that would not um, be approved by the, the regulator, or could be then 
ruled illegal at some point in the future. And when we're talking about a 15 year time horizon to uh, to finish that contract, that's that's a risk that it can be too large for us to take. Yeah. Um, the the other the real hurdle in many of these countries is that you do have some tax credits and distribute and um, accelerated depreciation and other incentives, but uh, those are much more difficult to capture under a, a third party finance PPA model than. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's something that's happened in energy efficiency a lot as well. The projects over many years of, of ESCOs operating, the projects tend to be small. ESCOs cost of capital is higher than the clients and often clients will say, thanks for the suggested project. I'll put it in my capital budget and hopefully I'll do it within a few years on my own balance sheet with much, much, much lower cost of debt. So the same thing is happening in, in solar projects quite a bit now. So, uh, you know, until the contract's actually signed with the client, it's very difficult for us to uh, get involved in offering terms to a developer. Okay. So, but, and by way of advice, right. Um, often step in and help them negotiate those, those deals. And, um, you know, what I find is a lot of developers locally don't, they don't know what they don't know. Uh, my challenge to you and any of the developers in this space who are coming in with capital is, are you willing to provide sort of an open source checklist or, uh, even better, an open source contract template that developers could utilize and, and bring, and would bring you, you know, your own paperback signed. Is that something that you guys have looked at? Yes, although I would also say in, in certain markets to, to capture these incentives, um, even we don't have the the, the bulletproof uh, contract that's that's the best way to ensure you get that investment tax credit and distribute mm-hmm. in, um, in, the, in the DR because it, it might be an operating lease um, or a financing, uh, a leaseback type of contract. Yeah. Um, in Panama, yes, I could give you these are the terms that are legal and and this will work right. in, in mexico it's um it's it's fairly simple uh, although even there is it operating or financial lease can be a question so um in brazil you know we it's established um so i it just is in each market it's different and then the client um there are many options for the clients so really once you have the the agreement signed or a, a pretty loose um, MOU signed with the client for us to come in as a team with you and do the final negotiations face-to-face with the client is the best way to actually close the deal. Thanks for that. I appreciate that extra insight. You know, I found that mentors have been a key area of growth in my life. I imagine that, you know, with your varied career and, and multiple points of contact throughout uh, the industry and also living in DC, you've probably had a mentor or two. I'd love to know if there are any key lessons or advice that you hold dear uh, that you've been that was shared to you by a mentor at some point in your career. Yes, I would say that um, I've had some some great leaders who have taught me a lot about leadership and um, and and work ethic. In the renewable energy business, it, it really was. I was there almost at the very start of it when the carbon markets were first started and when when you know, the first uh, you know, solar and wind projects were being built. So 
um, I, I didn't have a, a lot of uh, senior leaders that knew a lot more than me about these topics. Uh, I did see uh, a lot of people who were much smarter than me, um, but didn't know enough about electricity and, and buying mm-hmm. and selling of electricity to make a lot of bad investments in the early days of the uh, post-tech boom, but the really uh, renewable energy investment and in, uh, business business. Um, so, I mean, one of the most critical lessons I learned working in a DG company in 2003, 2004 was really the importance of the utilities and, uh, and how they can make or break your projects and, um, and really understanding the, the regulations in detail. So, uh, that, that really is going to drive and continue to drive distributed generation markets and storage markets. Storage markets are, are even more complicated in that sense. And when you say understand the utility, what would I need as a lay person, you know, trying to develop DG portfolios, what would I need to know about the utility that I wouldn't presume I, I already know? Well, the, the tariff structures can make or break these projects. Uh, you have lots of people thought Costa Rica was going to be a great market for solar when, you had a monopolistic um, government-owned utility that, that provides almost all the electricity in, in Costa Rica and um, has very high demand charges that solar was never able to, and to this date is not able to reduce. And therefore, um, it, it just was, you know, you could look at, oh, the tariffs are 13 16% or 16 cents uh, a kilowatt hour, but in reality, your solar energy was only worth seven or eight cents a kilowatt hour. So, so I, I guess it's electricity regulations and and the structure of those uh, of billing really drives these markets, mm-hmm. and and it can like Guatemala versus uh, Mexico versus um, Nicaragua and Honduras are are in completely different electricity regulation environments to work in. So, so really valuing that, that expertise was, um, was something I learned to do. Yeah, I can appreciate that for sure. Having, uh, having done business in all of the countries and, you've mentioned, it's yeah, absolutely and, true. And the U S obviously that's the people that work in the U S understand the, the state's importance in, in, in which projects, you know, if you look at a map of where projects have been built in the U S, uh, it, it doesn't have a lot to do with the renewable energy resource, but more to do with, uh, you know, what, what RPS standards were in place and what regulations were there to support them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what has you most excited right now for investing in Latin America? Well, I would, I would say storage is really uh, an interesting uh, additive to in one part, you know, remove that uh, the demand charge problem that you have with, with rooftop solar yeah. On the other hand, I'm I'm really hoping prices can drop fast as they have in solar, so that can really make economic sense at the individual consumer level. So you see, what you, what you're saying is you see a a budding market for storage as a demand response solution. Yes. Or not, and not demand response as we use it in the United States, uh, where you shut down, but rather where someone can uh, shift load. Uh, during the day onto storage instead of paying higher demand charges in the middle of the day. Is that what you mean? Yes. And, or, or at night to, mm-hmm. to, to stretch out the, the benefits of solar and to capture some of those uh, demand charges. Um, yeah, I think demand response market, it, it's just a question of how fast the 
utilities and regulations will move in Latin America uh, to make it as appealing as it is in certain parts of the U.S. If you if you had to use your best professional guess, what do you think we're one year or you know three years away? Is it, what do you see? And I would say from a market where we are legitimately financing storage plus PV that is used as a you know to do load shifting and demand response. Yes, I, I have been mistaken over the last fifteen years or so. I've been involved <laughs> in renewable energy many we're times. We're all holding of, you to it. <laughs> of, well, I, I would just say that you know I, I've grown more um, skeptical and cynical about how fast these things can move. I mean, it is right. energy, and and energy decisions are slow, and and it, it takes a long time. So, mm-hmm. so I, I wrote an article saying that you know DG was about to take off in in Latin America about four years ago, and. I don't think it's um, it's taken off like like <laughs> expected, despite the you know in electricity prices are high and it, it does make economic sense. Um, so I, I would probably say three years um, mm-hmm. before we're really seeing it commercially viable in in many locations. And um, mm-hmm. but but hopefully you know the prices are dropping rapidly, and then you just you still have this customer acquisition um, costs. So yeah. I would say that's the. The biggest hurdle is, is uh, you know, in the U.S. you have companies that invested heavily in customer acquisition and and now are, you know, somewhat may may or may not um, be paying for that. And um, generally, we're not, you know, as a as a fund, we're not taking a lot of customer acquisition risk and paying a lot for those costs. We're we're compensating developers after they've they brought the projects to us, but. Um, there's a lot of developers that are sinking a lot of money into customer acquisition that they're not getting paid back in the development fees. So, yeah, yep. I think that, and by and large, that's true across all of Latin America, not just in DG, but, uh, certainly in utility scale as well. Yeah. I think that financing on, you know, on balance sheet, which is what most, the, the first projects I financed at the IDB were all on the balance sheet of the customers. So they were energy efficiency and DG that were loans direct to the companies. And um, I think that that you know, in I know in the U.S. it's it's increasingly um, happening, and 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 I think it's going to happen more and more in Latin America. You do have a lot of banks that have have capital. It's just a question of them not being able to offer a ten-year plus loan, um, and uh, and and demanding a lot of collateral. One thing about us as an equity fund is we're not demanding collateral beyond the the equipment. So. So although our finance is much more costly than a bank's would be, um, we have much more um, uh, consumer-friendly terms. Excellent. I appreciate that extra insight. Hey, let's move to a, qu- a section I call learning, leadership, and legacy. Uh, what's the book that you've given away the most and why? I have a couple of young kids, so I, I read, and I, I read The Economist regularly. I, uh-huh. I occasionally read you know, fun books, but I really, uh, I read a lot of parenting books and, and a lot of, uh, lighter reading. So, I mean, I would say that, uh, that, that, uh, why soccer matters by Pele is actually a, a really, uh, good and fun read. And I, I have given that to a few people. That is awesome. Why soccer matters. Well, from another father of three children, I, uh, love getting advice on parenting books as we're not limited to just business or, or other types of books. Uh, yeah, Alejo uh, just recently recommended an absolutely excellent fiction book uh, that that I thought was amazing. Well, what similarly, what's the book that's most influenced a positive change you've made in your own life? Um, 
I mean, I, I read uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits very early when I was mm-hmm. in the Navy. And, and uh, you know, I, I think those, there was a lot of leadership training that I got and, and good, um, and now well, called self-help types of, mm-hmm. of books. But, you know, management books, um, I don't know. There's one, um, Dan Harris, this 10% happier. He's got an interesting podcast and uh, some really good speakers on there that, uh, that I've been listening to. And, and I like that book as well that's in that, that track. I'll have to check that out. I pushed back on reading the 10% Happier, mainly because I feel like I've done a lot of meditation books or sort of books on uh, on improving my mindset, if you will. Mm-hmm. But it's been recommended enough. Maybe I'm going to have to check that one out. But um, I don't know. How about you? Is there anything you've read recently that you could recommend my way? I don't, like I said, I don't have a lot of time to read, but... Yeah, absolutely. I'm recommending this book and buying a couple of copies to give to a bunch of my friends. Uh, it was recommended to me by my by my best friend. It's called The Unbeatable Mind, and I'll link to it in the show notes for your, your episode as well. But uh, I'll I'll shoot you an email. It's called The Unbeatable Mind. Uh, the guy's name is Mark Divine, and it, it's again another one of these types of books similar to Ten Percent Happier, where um, you know you focus on the habits that make a difference daily in your life and you know he fo- he points out meditation he points out daily exercise and yoga and uh and he gets real specific about uh the mindset required for you know this warrior mindset of being a, of being a navy seal in particular so i think you'd mm. appreciate it because of your um your background um i found it a fascinating read and it's definitely my favorite book of uh, 2017 that i've read and i've recommended mm. it a bunch Okay. Yeah. You know what you would like then? There's, there is a podcast show that Dan Harris does with Greg Gogarty, I think. Mm. Um, okay. The guy's pretty amazing. and He's in Navy SEAL as is well. It, as so he, it's one of his episodes? Um, yeah, podcast? it's one of his episodes on the podcast. Okay. Yeah, I often link to a lot of this stuff in the, uh, in, in the show notes. So, um, you know, one of the things I try to do is just give, I give a, a reference for folks uh, to be able to read what leaders are reading and that's one of the reasons that we have this whole section i on that note i'm curious what one thing maybe it's a series of things but for me it's one thing what one thing do you do consistently that yields the greatest impact or results in your personal and professional life i like to run so yeah i I run quite a bit and um i i would i would like to meditate more but i (laughs) i just haven't been disciplined enough to do it nice i'm putting it out there for those of you who are attending Unlocking Solar Capital. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna challenge you all to go on a morning run with us. So, I uh, that sounds great. Yeah, I often run. I try to run by 7 a.m. And for me, it's running. I mean, I it's ironic how many folks who come on uh, Suncast, their one thing of consistency is running, and it just helps clear the mind and and get you really focused. And uh, so I can totally identify with that. Yes, I've gotten quite a few uh, routes around Miami, either downtown or out on South Beach. Uh, given the time I'm spending there. so Excellent. Where is that show going to be hosted again? I can I can never remember if it's downtown or on the, on the beach. Um, yeah, I need to check too. Well, don't, uh, don't, don't, don't worry right now. I'll, I'll actually be linking to, uh, as, uh, to Unlocking Solar Capital. As I mentioned, Solar Plaza kindly is, uh, is helping uh, partner with Suncast. We're a media sponsor for that show. Hope to see you folks there. And obviously... You know, one of the reasons that uh, that Patrick, you are uh, a guest this week on Suncast is because you're going to be speaking at 
the show Unlocking Solar Capital. So apart from being in Miami and seeing you speak on the panel there, where else could people find you? How could folks engage with you? Uh, I, I provide my email is um, pdoyle at mgminnovacap, mm-hmm. um, or our website is mgminnovacap.com, uh, where you can you can find me. That'd probably be the easiest. Perfect. Very good. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction. Pat, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I think solar plus storage is is going to make uh, the utilities really obsolete, and the utilities are um, are going to fight back against that. So I think it's going to be a long haul. But uh, initially, the, there's going to be some serious problems for a lot of the the utilities as solar and storage become so cheap that they are um, no longer able to compete. I love it. I love it. Solar plus storage is going to force existing utilities to rethink and retool their business model. Well, Pat. If that or something like it happens, we'll be sure to talk about it here on Suncast. We're so glad to have you on the show today. Really, thank you for being here. Thanks a lot, Nico. It was a real pleasure. Wow, look at that. We're already done with another episode. Hey, I mentioned before this episode's brought to you in collaboration with Solar Plaza. Get over to www.mysuncast.com forward slash plaza for details on the Unlocking Solar Capital LATAM event in Miami coming up June 15th and 16th. Don't forget the 10% discount code. 10%! I mean, that's a meal in Miami, or at least an appetizer. So go use Suncast at checkout. Grab your 10%. I'll see you in Miami. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me. Nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.